My guest today, Lizzie Carr, is on a mission to clean up the world's rivers and waterways. Her organisation, Planet Patrol, is working to eliminate single-use materials and litter, like plastic, to protect our planet and wildlife for the future. Planet Patrol is no ordinary environmental organisation and Lizzie is no ordinary activist. She's made history. In 2016, she became the first person to travel the entire length of Britain's waterways on a paddleboard. The year after that, she went one step further, becoming the first woman to paddleboard solo across the English Channel. Then in 2018, Lizzie took on her biggest challenge yet, paddleboarding the entire length of the Hudson River in America. It was quite foggy and just seeing this huge cargo ship coming towards me out of the distance whilst I was in the shipping lane. Um, and I just remember the, the uh, captain on the support boat just saying to me very calmly, but very firmly, Lizzie, you need to paddle now very hard for 10 minutes. It was about three miles away from me and it looked humongous. But these challenges were about more than making it into the record books. Lizzie did it all to inspire people to start talking about the plastic polluting our waters. I'm Ian Wright, and from something else, this is Everyday People. We're going to start in the mid-2010s. Lizzie had recently graduated with an English degree and secured a top job in marketing. She was working in the city, earning decent money, but something was missing. Do you know, I was happy, but I wasn't fulfilled. Right. I think at the time I thought I was happy. I thought I was achieving what I wanted to achieve because you're conditioned to believe, aren't mm, you, that mm. a good paycheck and a good job yeah. title and you're on that road to success. Oh in those three years, I was just just stuck in the rut Limbo. everyone gets stuck in. Yeah, Limbo. just I can't change my, I can't leave my job. I can't take time out. I need to keep working hard. I need to keep mm. sort of pushing myself and grinding because that's what you're meant to do and then I think eventually it just it kind of got a bit too much it's like if I don't do it now I'm in my mid-20s I'm never going to do this I never took a gap year I hadn't really traveled I didn't have much money growing up so mm -hmm. it wasn't like I'd had all these great experiences but I managed to save a little bit and I thought it's now or never I suppose mm, right and, you, and, you, and so you took some time out to travel and where'd you go where'd you go I went through sub-Saharan Africa and wow. I did the Trans-Siberian Railway through Mongolia and Russia. Um, I went to China and I hiked through some of the like provinces in Western China. I tried to travel to quite remote places and really embed myself as much yeah. as I could in the cultures and the, the sort of the, and the people that I met when I was when I was traveling. So you wait seven months and you come back. Tell me about when you get back? Gosh, I mean, mm. that's when the real whirlwind starts. So I got back and I hadn't started my job straight away. I still had a few weeks and I had a lump in my throat. How long? Um, How long did you have that? Well, I'd had it the whole time I was traveling and I'd always been aware of it, but I just didn't really think anything of it. So I'd probably had it about a year and a half before. Wow. And because I hadn't started back at work and I had a bit of time on my hand, I just made a doctor's appointment to go and get it checked. And what were you told? What, what was the, what's that like? Um, so at first I wasn't told it was, I was actually dismissed quite a lot because I was only, I was 25 when I first started right. um, sort of having, like having the test and going to the doctors and I was misdiagnosed quite a lot Jesus. and just kept being told, no, you're young, fit and healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. Basically stop wasting our time. Oh my God. Um, and I was quite persistent, really. 
why was you why was you so up, persistent was it was it was I it starting know. to hurt or was it hurting you or was it was you just was you feeling it all the time? Was you touching it? Was it? Yeah, I was touching it all the time. And it probably sounds quite strange. And I'm not, I don't really know how to explain it. But I remember um, I used to like wake up in the middle of the night and I used to say to my boyfriend, I just, I don't think I'm going to like live to my 30th birthday. Oh my God. I don't know why. I just, I just had a sense. I just knew something was wrong and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I didn't know if it was this lump in my throat or not, but something was telling me that there was a problem and I was feeling this like deep sense of anxiety. So I ended up seeing a different doctor and getting a second opinion who set me off on a very different course. And obviously that then led to my cancer diagnosis Mm -hmm. and um, the treatment that I went on to have. But I just, I just always look back and think, my goodness, if I'd have listened to that first doctor that said to me, just leave it, if it gets any worse, come back in a couple of years... I wouldn't be here now. Lizzie was eventually diagnosed with stage two thyroid cancer. This would be difficult news for anyone to take, but for an otherwise fit and healthy 26 year old, it was a huge shock. She began treatment. So what I had is called radioactive iodine ablation. So you just take a radioactive pill and you're mm-hmm. sort of locked in this lead lined room in the hospital for about a week. Um, and all your what? food is served to you through like, like a prisoner in the door. Like a prisoner. Basically, yeah. It's oh like gosh. being in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> what was you what, and was you allowed to leave that room? No, because oh my I was gosh. really radioactive. I was like I was no one was allowed in or out. Oh god, how's that? How's how how did you how did you find that? Really, really <sighs> tough because at that time you're still processing what's just happened to you and all of these emotions mm. that you're feeling and just being forced to be in complete isolation you know, by yourself, dealing with all of that stuff. It's really tricky. And, you know, in, back then in the hospital, this is, I think, eight years ago now, there was no Instagram, there was no Netflix, there was none of this stuff. There was mm. no real distractions. It was just you left with your own thoughts. God, and what were those thoughts? What What was you thinking? Sort of look back on my life and my job and the pace that I was living and working and just thought, what am I doing? That was the oh. moment it really struck. I think I'd already got a sense of it when I'd gone travelling, and I think yes. coming back to that just cemented it all for me. Are you religious? Do, did you have any? Did you have any kind of religious feelings like this is all a sign? Going there, seeing a simple life, coming back, getting that illness, having to like recalculate everything what's going on in your life. Was there any kind of religious vibe about you? Do you know I'm not really religious, but mm. in that time I was God fearing. It yes. was like it I. Happens called to God I prayed yeah and that's what I'm thinking you in that room you know being like the food served in like a like a, a like a prisoner you must be talking to someone in your yeah. in there yeah it was it was like if you if you let me get through this I promise that I will spend more time with my friends and family I promise that I will live a life that is so meaningful and I'll give so much back just just let me live basically when you left hospital what happened from there so I went to go and stay with my dad. He lives right. on the Isles of Scilly, a little island at the end of Cornwall. Mm. I was quite weak, I would say. Um, and just, there was a lot of brain fog. And I think that was probably half processing the cancer and half just being in like this strange feeling in my body, just mm-hmm. adjusting to this total transformation I think I'd gone through. We went and sat on the beach most afternoons and I would just you know, look out onto the water. And one day I saw somebody paddleboarding and I said to my dad, I really, really want to give that a go. Like, I really feel that I could do it. I think it would be really good for me. Right, right. So I walked over to the sailing club um, 
on the beach and I asked to borrow one of their paddle boards and they sort of said, have you done it before? I was like, no, but mm. I'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, you're sort of thinking, how hard can it be? Um, and honestly, as soon as I, as soon as I was on the water and as soon as my paddle hit that water, I was like, this is for me. This is what's oh my missing. Gosh. This is what I need. Just for the people. Just for the people who don't know, can you just explain the paddleboard, how long it is, what what, what you're doing on it? Um, so it's basically an oversized surfboard right. with a paddle mm-hmm. and you just stand, you can kneel on it, but you stand on it and just propel yourself along using using your paddle. Okay. Sim- that simple. That simple. And so Have once, you done it? I, I tried it, but like I'm, I'm not very good in big water, Liz. I don't surf. I don't do none of that stuff. But like I've seen it and it does look good because all the other people I'm with my missus does it everybody else does it. I just I can't get out over the mental block of it how far did I, you go I think that's fair do like, you think so I don't like not seeing what's underneath yeah me. yeah I mean I I went on it really because I wanted to start building my physical strength back up right, right. but what I got from it that I didn't expect was this mental side of it being out on the water and paddling along just hearing like the song of the paddle you know the water as you're as you're paddling along the sound of it coming out and just feeling this total sense of freedom and calm there was this really awful situation in my life Mm -hmm. that I was kind of dealing with and trying to work through and when I was out on the water I just didn't really think about it Lizzie found something that she loved, but soon it was time for her to return to her old life in London. At weekends, she kept up the paddleboarding on canals, but when she went back to work, something didn't feel right. I just, I literally, one day, it was a Wednesday morning, and I got on the train and I just looked around, all these grey faces on the train doing their commute, and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. It's just something just clicked, and I thought, you know, I've had cancer that's the worst thing I think I'll ever experience in my life. And if I can get through that and move forward from it, then I can get through anything. I don't really, I don't really care what happens now. If it, you know, what can really go wrong? I've got my health, I've got my family, I've got my friends, nothing else really matters that much to me now. So I just went in that morning. I said to my boss, I I can't do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to leave. And, um, I rang my boyfriend and I said, I've just quit my job. <laughs> was there any was there any moments where you're thinking, oh my gosh, uh, I actually don't know. I don't know what yeah. I'm going to do. What was those moments like? So you think, oh God, what have I done? Did you have those moments? What have I done? No. Do you know what? To this day, it's nearly, nearly five years, I think, since I've quit. And I've never in a single moment looked back and thought, what have I done? I shouldn't have Brilliant. done that. So, so you're still doing your paddling. Mm-hmm. What happens then? What happens? So I'm still paddling and still going through the canals in London. And I think at that point, getting more and more frustrated about, about the amount of litter that I'm seeing absolutely oh everywhere. Can I just set the scene for people listening? So you're doing your stuff. You're just doing your serene stuff. You're just going along and you're feeling, this is beautiful. This is where I get my, this is where I get my vitamins, doing my paddleboarding. <laughs> and you're seeing plastic everywhere. Oh, Yeah. And I mean, it was everywhere. And I would get plastic bags caught in my paddle Mm. when I was going along the water or bottles would roll from one end of the board and pop out the other end. And then I'd see just swans chewing at 
at sweet wrappers and crisp wrappers and these nests just made up almost entirely, like literally almost entirely of plastic, like straws and wrappers and bags mm. and that kind of thing. And you'd see little eggs in them and you'd think as soon as these eggs hatch, the first thing they're going to see is plastic. Yes. And it just it just really hit me. And being out on the water more, it just it wasn't a positive experience anymore. It was it was really sitting heavy with me. I suppose from there, it was like, how can I make people see this problem and understand this problem the way that I see it and understand it? Mm-hmm. And that's when my first kind of big idea to paddleboard the length of England came from. I paddleboarded the length of England from mm. the most southerly to the most northerly point. I hadn't been paddleboarding that much, and I remember thinking, it can't be that hard, I can just train on the go. So I'd done a bit of training like leading up to it, um, but for me it was more mind over matter. It right. was, I've just, you know, got to get through this. So I would normally wake at around 6am because I was in some farmer's field and had to get out of the field before anyone woke up so I'd get up sort of just before daybreak so you had a tent um, you had a tent I had a tent yeah put the okay. tent on the front of my boards had a little stove and I would I, I drank the canal water as well I used that to cook too so I, I, I filtered it explain in this little, explain I filtered the, it oh god <laughs> so so you had to so you had to find out about the filtering and it was okay to to drink and everything especially with your condition weren't you worried about that well, yeah, I got quite sick for the first oh few my days. Gosh, Liz. Um, but after that, it was completely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd paddle for about, I suppose, about 10 hours a day, um, every day. And then just before sort of dusk, as the sun would set, mm-hmm. I would sort of find somewhere to pitch up my tent again and camp, get a bit of food um, and just sleep. It was literally like eat, sleep, paddle, oh. repeat. Did for you have any days. did you have any problems with pitching up your tent anywhere? Did anybody say to you get off my land, any kind of stuff like that, or was you okay? Do you know what? It was all absolutely fine. And I remember waking up one morning in a farmer's field and I saw his tractor in the distance and I thought, uh oh, I'm in trouble here. And he came down and he just waved at me. And okay. I just thought, you hero, that's amazing. <laughs> um, but I suppose for me, it was important, like the idea of leave no trace. I would arrive late, leave early. I wouldn't leave any sign that I'd been there and right. I'd carry on on my journey. Like I wasn't doing any harm mm. with that. So tell me about what you were seeing. So on the water, on the water, in the water, around the water, I mean, it was just laden with plastic, a soup of plastic along the waterways. And I was photographing everything that right. I saw. I couldn't pick it up because yep. if I did, my board would probably sink. Right. Um, I was photographing and logging every single piece of plastic along that journey. So what I encountered as one individual as I paddleboarded through the length of England. And I mean, there were there was so much I missed. I could only get like one side of a riverbank, for example. Of um, and I can't capture what's underneath the water. So I just got a snapshot of how big this problem is, basically. And it was just, there were the most random things, like you'd find uh, plant pots, car bonnets, umbrellas, uh, so many bikes in there. Just, you name it, I've probably found it on a canal or river in this country. So so what do you think, so what? So you've got this sense of sadness, but you know what's going on and you and mm. you, you feel like, you, you obviously feel like you, you want to do something, taking the photos and everything to document it. So what do you do? So I built a a map of all the photos that I'd taken and I analysed them all and picked the four 
worst affected areas around the country, I went back to those areas and I litter picked and and I collected thousands of bottles and I made a raft out of those bottles and I floated it down the River Trent in Nottingham. Um, And then on the other side of that, Mm. I then... um, I suppose I was really fortunate because I was using paddleboarding as a vehicle to talk about the environment. Because if I'd have talked to people about plastic then, no one would have really listened. And I knew that because I tried and it hadn't really worked. Right. So by paddleboarding and setting this kind of world first expedition, I could get people to, to really think about it a bit more. When I finished and people were asking how they could get involved, the other thing that I did was invite people out on the water with me. So I sort of put it on social media at that point. You know, if anyone wants to come paddleboarding, all completely free, I'm going to be at various places around the country. I'll teach you and your payment, your nature tax is to litter pick and log everything that you okay. find with me. Um, and people came, people got involved. I mean, it was, it was, ama- was I was yeah? amazed that people actually wanted to do it. What was it like? What was it like when you saw, when you went yourself and you're getting yourself ready and then you saw the first person turning up? What was that feeling like? I just I remember thinking I can't believe someone's come out to litter pick because nobody was really litter picking then. They lots of people litter pick now, but back then, I mean, we would get heckled all the time for looking like we were on community service or people would just shout abuse at us all the oh time litter picking. But now it's it's completely transformed and people like applaud you and thank you. How much litter do you think that you have found? since you started doing this? Um, we've tracked it as much as we can. I would say about 500 tonnes <gasps> we've collected over the last few years. No way. No yeah. way. How, how did you, how did you pers- persuade people to come and actually pick rubbish out of the canal? What was your... What, what I was think your a lot of people were tempted by the idea of paddleboarding for free. I think right. a lot of people were there for the Where'd adventure Where did you get the paddleboards from? Where did you get all the paddleboards from? I was lent them. This is a hilarious thing. Like, I didn't even own a paddleboard when I did that first challenge. I borrowed right. it from the local club. <laughs> um, so it was just, I, I couldn't afford to buy one. It was just this really heavy paddleboard and this old crappy paddle. Mm. Um, and then when I'd finished it, I contacted a few brands and said, look, I just need three or four boards. to want mm-hmm. to take a handful of people out with me to paddleboard. And I was given a few boards, which meant I could go out. And I borrowed my boyfriend's van, which mm. I ended up crashing, but we won't talk about <laughs> that part. So it's much more organised now and it's grown a lot and it's like a legitimate organisation. But when I started, it was just me. I didn't know what I was doing. There was no mm. blueprint for what I was creating. Right. I didn't even know I was creating it. Lizzie was in the process of creating Plastic Patrol, an environmental organisation which is now known as Planet Patrol. One of the people who joined Lizzie on those early cleanups was Tom Rook. What's wonderful about Lizzie is she's completely humanised the whole journey of being more environmentally conscious and ethical and all trying to do our bit. She's made it very uncomplicated. She's made it fun. People are signing up. A lot of the Planet Patrol litter picks that we do sell out in days, sometimes hours. So everybody's keen to get involved and she started that. And that form of inspiration, you know, if you could bottle that, wow, just as long as the bottle's not plastic. (laughs) He's right. How does that make you feel, Liz? Oh, that's a that brilliant really message. Emotional. You got, I've got, I've got to ask you about something, Liz, because it was um, 
an amazing thing even just to think about. In 2017, you paddled the English Channel. Now, I just, because remember I mentioned earlier on, like I'm scared of that kind of big water. What was that like? And why the English Channel? I I used to be really scared of water. Mm. Um, Open water. Like I really do empathise with the feelings of being out in the the ocean. And um, yeah, paddling the English Channel... I mean that was that was pretty surreal actually. Mm. But the whole point of that was around highlighting microplastic pollution. I'd kind of gone from the big plastics in canals and rivers to where it ends up once it mm-hmm. degrades and breaks down, it turns into microplastics. Mm-hmm. Um and they are just, you know, filled in the, the ocean is filled with them and Can you can you animals... explain just what what they are? so they 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 break down and so what do they do? Yeah, so the microplastics just really like almost microscopic pieces of plastics. Often they're fibres from our clothing, like synthetic clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the biggest microplastic kind of perpetrator is in, in the sea. So just by washing your clothes, you're adding to it with, with every load that you wash. And fish eat them. Obviously, then big predator fish eat the smaller fish mm-hmm. and then we eat some of the bigger predator fish and it ends up back in the human food chain. Okay. And what we don't know now is the implications of these microplastics that are being eaten by fish and now ending up in our human bodies. Like long term, what that means, like we're only just starting to unpick some of the science around that now. So it's actually quite terrifying to think that yes. we're the guinea pigs for this, for the, yes, sort of the plastic generation. Lizzie thought that if she could make it into the news by paddleboarding across the English Channel, then maybe she could encourage people to have conversations about the environment. But physically, crossing the Channel was a bigger challenge than she could ever have imagined. It was quite foggy and just seeing this huge cargo ship coming towards me out of the distance whilst I was in the shipping lane. and I just remember the the uh, captain on the support boat just saying to me very calmly but very firmly, Lizzie, you need to paddle now very hard for <laughs> 10 minutes. And I'm like... I in a certain swear. direction. In a certain direction. Yeah. In the right direction. <laughs> don't get this wrong. Back in a moment. So he don't, he didn't, did he tell you why or did you know why? You I, can see see the, I can see wow. the ship. How big did it look? It was about three miles away from me and right. it looked humongous. God, that would be too much um, So you can imagine. And the thing is that, that, that boat can't mm. slow down. I'm in its way. It mm. can't just suddenly stop for me. So if I don't get out of its line of passage quickly enough, you know, I'm going under. Just in time. Lizzie made it out of the way of the ship and into the Guinness Book of Records. It was an incredible effort and most people might have stopped there, but Lizzie wanted a bigger challenge. In 2018, she turned her attention to America and attempted to cross the tidal length of the Hudson River in New York, 170 gruelling miles. When you hear the word river, it conjures up quite nice images of serene, um, serene, picturesque environments. And actually that, that... river is it's a real beast and it frightened me to be honest mm. i'll tell you what we've got to listen to a clip from your sister angela about this challenge flying out to america to do something like that um i just for me it it was just amazing and it was great to have 
crazily enough, and the technology we have today that allows you to do this, whilst she's out on a paddleboard in the middle of the Hudson River, that we're able to talk over FaceTime. And the crazy thing was, I remember one time I called her and there was a thunderstorm that was in the distance. And I think being out on the water, you know, you could get hit by lightning, all of those things. Um, and so it was just, you know, keeping her calm, making sure she had someone there, because I'm sure, you know, for her, it was incredibly lonely and scary. And several times we were on the phone talking in those situations just to keep her mind busy and uh, talking about fun things, as siblings do. Was this one a lot more scary? It sounded like it was a lot more scary, more treacherous. Oh, gosh, yeah, this brings back memory. Storm Gordon was just leaving uh, the East Coast and Hurricane Florence was just coming in on the East Coast when I was doing that paddle. So it was throwing up the most absolutely obscene like weather conditions. You'd look at the forecast every day and you'd try and identify the windows that you had where it was safe to go out and paddle and then it would change and you'd be out on the water and you're stuck on the water. Mm. And a lot of the Hudson on one side is is a rail track for quite some distance. So you can't get off the water because it's just a solid railway line. There's not yeah. anywhere to escape. And oh, there were gosh. moments where there were a couple of thunderstorms, one particularly where I'm on the water and I can see the lightning striking around me. And when you're on the water with a carbon paddle and you're effectively the highest Course. person or the highest thing on that, on highest that body, element, yeah. you're kind of thinking, oh, my, you know, I'm sort of treading on thin ice here and I need to get off. I was honestly, I was really, really scared at a few points. And other times, like my sister said, I would call her and just have her in my mm. headphones and be like, just keep me calm. Please keep me calm because I can't spiral. I need to keep right. focus. I need to keep strong. Mm. How long did that one take? How Eight long days. Was that trip? And, and what was it like when you can finally see the Manhattan skyline? I mean, that was really amazing, actually, mm. seeing that in the distance. And mm. um, I remember one evening just looking down, straight down the river and just like quite far in the distance, you could just see the lights of Manhattan. And yeah. I was thinking, I'm almost there. I've, I've got this. I can see this now. Mm. And then at the end, obviously, I finished at the Statue of Liberty and getting sort of standing in front of Lady Liberty in, mm. in that moment and everything that she represents and everything that that doing. challenge was about was, yeah. yeah, that was an iconic moment for me. I've got to say, how, how do you think the big, ex, these expeditions, like these challenges, what you've taken have raised awareness for, for Planet Patrol? Um, what I think they've done is created an interesting angle for people talk, to talk about the planet right. and the environment. Yeah. So again, like with the Hudson, I'd organise community <clears throat> cleanups along the river. Um, we were using the app to track litter that I'd found over there. Did you get a good response over there, Liz? Yeah, I did. But I would say that in the US, that they're probably a couple of years behind where the UK is in terms of awareness and action yeah. for plastic pollution. I didn't expect it to create a huge impact, but I felt like, like with the UK, you know, it, it's been really successful over here and Planet Patrol's really worked. How can I create some friction in one of the world's, well, the world's biggest consumer of single-use plastics and yeah. one of the biggest polluters of single-use plastics? So, you know... In somewhere like America, they they have the means and the resources to cut that and they, they should be doing more with it. I mean, hopefully mm. now they will. But for me, it was just 
this problem is so much bigger than what's happening on your doorstep. You know, we're all connected by the same waters. We all have to take action all over the world. So how can I help do that in places where it's possible to do it? And what next, Liz? What, what next in respects of raising awareness? Because now I'm, I'm, I'm looking next to me, I've got a, a plastic bottle there. What next? What next um, are you going to do? To send you a reusable bottle will be okay. my next immediate step. Thank you very much, Liz. <laughs> really sorry. Um, do you know what? I think You know what? Moment... Just feeling guilty about having that plastic. <laughs> but like the fact is, Liz, um, just sitting here, because obviously I'll speak to people and sometimes you, you go to parties and that people talk about it and it does, it does trigger your conscience. But now I'm sitting here seeing like plastic around. You, you, you do feel a little bit more conscious. You do feel I like, I think yeah. it's when you realise the impact that it can potentially have on you. That's when a lot of people are like, actually, I need to do something now. Mm. It's like I read the other day, and obviously I've just had a little baby, that they found microplastics in the umbilical cords of <gasps> babies. And I just thought, this is ridiculous now. Like, this is so ingrained in our lives. Like, the air we breathe, the salt we eat, the beer we drink, is plastic in everything now. It's just everywhere. And we really need to get a grip on it because we don't really know what the outcome will be. I got to say, Liz, is that listening to listening to you, it's it's amazing. The journey, when you look back on the journey, how do you feel in respects of how it kind of started to where you are now? Do you know it's just such a whirlwind? It's been five years, and I suppose I look back and I think, has that just happened? Is that mm. real? Is this is this is this my life? I feel so grateful that I can get up every day and do something that I really care about. And I think looking around at what Planet Patrol has achieved, I mean, we've got hundreds of reps now all over the world. We've collected, like I said earlier, that sort of 500 tonnes of litter. There's just so much that we've done. We've been to number 10. We've just achieved more than I ever even imagined that it would. And I'm Lizzie, so you've, thankful. You, you, you've, you've created a global community off of the fact that, you know, from sitting on, looking out to the sea on the Isles of Scilly, to what you're doing now. Things happen and then unbelievable things come from something that feels like it's a real, a real massive negative. And I, I just can't say, I can't say how, how proud I am to be speaking to you and uh, your family must be very proud of what you've done up to this point. Thank you. And I think that's really very true. Like I've always called cancer my uh, biggest nightmare and my greatest blessing. And I mm. think that you've summed that up really well with what you've just said. If you like what you've heard so far and think you've got an amazing story to tell, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at everydaypeople at somethingelse.com. That's everydaypeople at somethingelse.com without the G. Next time on Everyday People, Running With Purpose, Charlie Duck. I had a run late one night and I thought to myself, yo, this run is really hard. And I started making these imaginary characters up in my head. Slow boy, he was one of them, you know. All these different characters, I gave them all names. And as I was running with them, and then I started having these conversations with myself and these different characters, I suddenly thought, I should make this real. I should make this a real thing because it's going to solve some of the things that are troubling me. Everyday People is a Something Else production hosted by me, Ian Wright. This episode was produced by Paul Smith. The series producer is Jade Scott. Our assistant producer is Grace Laker. Our executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Our sound and mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. With thanks to Chris Skinner and Steve Ackerman. <laughs> <laughs>